0: You can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of John as we work our way through John's gospel. We're in John chapter 13 this morning. We introduced the Upper Room Discourse last week. The Upper Room Discourse is chapters 13 to 16, followed by Jesus' high priestly prayer in chapter 17, and then the events of the Passion from chapters 18 to 20. And then the book ends with an epilogue. So I want to read beginning in chapter 13 at verse 1. We'll read to verse 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. Gracious God and Holy Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for the the privilege to gather in the house of God with your people. And we pray that in all of this, you would be glorified and honored. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your great salvation. We thank you for what we find in the Gospel of John concerning the, the, the word that became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and the fact that he assumed our humanity, that he lived for us, that he died for us, that he was raised again for us. And God, I pray that as we consider these things, our hearts would be drawn out in worship and praise and adoration. And as well, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be at work in the hearts of any here that are still dead in their trespasses and sins. May they see in Christ a a blessed Savior, one who saves to the uttermost, all who draw near to God through him. And we pray this for our meeting together here, for other churches in our city and throughout this country and to the uttermost parts of the earth. We know that your purpose and plan is to save a great multitude that no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So God bless that word as it goes forth today and may it not return unto you void. Forgive us now for all of our sins and cleanse us in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and give us ears to hear by the power of your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I said, as we come to this particular section of Scripture, it's kind of the Lord's 11th hour. It's stuff that he wants to encourage the disciples with to fit and prepare them for gospel ministry. Remember that he's going to die. He's going to be raised again, and then he's going to ascend on high. He's going to be seated at the right hand of the Father, where he rules and reigns over all things. He is active and present in the church by his Spirit, and so he wants to exhort the disciples on how they're to conduct themselves when he goes back to heaven. They're supposed to live in a manner that is consistent with the pattern that he has set forth. They're supposed to be diligent with preaching the word of truth, and remember that as he approaches them, we saw last week in chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, uh, one to 3, that we see that it's his love, it's his authority, and it's his mission that sort of motivates the words that he speaks to them in this upper room discourse. So he sets forth truth. He wants to commend his love to them, but flowing from that love is that desire to prepare them for the task at hand. Once he ascends back on high, it's not going to be him just sort of snapping his fingers, adding to the church. It's going to be these men filled with the Spirit, filled with the knowledge of the Bible and theology, given that task to go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, to baptize those disciples, to teach those disciples, and to be conscious of the fact that Christ is always with them, even to the end of the age. He is that way by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he fits his disciples for service. Now, when, he comes to ver- or when we come to verses 4 to 17, I want to try and show how this foot washing points to that. The foot washing is quite interesting. It's a custom that obtained at that particular time in the world. If you were weary traveling and you came to a neighbor's house, it would not be uncommon for that neighbor to wash your feet or perhaps have a servant in the home that would wash your feet. Remember, we're not dealing with our modern situation. These fellows with their dirty feet hadn't had a shower that morning. They didn't leave their shoes by the front door. They didn't take off their socks so that Jesus could then wash their feet. These are filthy feet. These are dirty feet. These are feet that perhaps smelled bad. These were feet that perhaps looked bad. Some of us have an aversion to even looking at feet, let alone touching them and washing them. it is important that what this foot washing points to is the greater act of service that's going to happen at the end of the week. The son of man was willing to take off his outer garments, to gird himself with a towel, to pour water into a basin, and to stoop to the level of washing the feet, the dirty feet of sinful men. If you think that's something, wait till the end of the week when that self same savior goes to the cross, not simply to wash dirty feet of dirty sinners, but to wash dirty hearts of dirty sinners. So the one is symptomatic or emblematic of the other. If the son of God is willing to wash dirty feet, the son of God is willing to wash dirty hearts. And that's very encouraging. That's very much the the essence of the Christian gospel. So let's look at this particular passage. We've already seen the introduction to the discourse in verses 1 to 3. We'll look next at the demonstration of humble service in verses 4 to 11, and then the exhortation to the disciples in verses 12 to 17. So when it comes to the demonstration of, his hum, of humble service, two things here. Note first the demonstration of his service in verses 4 to 8a, and then the explanation of his service in verses 8b to 11. But again, washing feet. Notice in verses 4 and 5. So it says, he rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. I think this particular activity points in two directions. First, it's a pattern given for the disciples. If you drop down to verses 12 to 17, he commends that pattern to the disciples as a methodology or strategy for Christian ministry. They need to know doctrine, they need to understand the scripture, they need to understand Genesis to Revelation, they need to know good theology, they need to be men committed to the word and doctrine, all that is certainly the case, but they need to be men that are loving, men that are gracious, men that are humble, men that are self-sacrificing, men that look out for the needs of others. So the foot washing that he engages in, in verses four to five, serve as a pattern or a paradigm for the disciples when they launch out into Christian ministry. They're not to advance the cause by guns and bullets. They're not to advance the cause by by helicopters and by tanks. They're to advance the cause by loving service rendered both within the context of the church and outside of the church. And again, always insisting upon the truth of the Christian gospel. So the, 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 the foot washing points to a pattern for them to observe. But I think the foot washing also symbolizes a couple of things in the life and ministry of our Lord. I think it symbolizes his incarnation. The fact that he has this willingness to serve humanity. The fact that he has this willingness to put humanity's needs at, 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 at a premium. And we see that in John 1, verses one Uh, uh, and 14. So the word became flesh, verse 14 specifically, and dwelt among us. The assumption of humanity on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrates his willingness to serve. It demonstrates his willingness to go to the uttermost. Again, foot washing, not a pleasant thing, I I don't know that any of you want to go home and wash feet, dirty, stinky feet. It's not something that is pleasing to us. It's certainly not calculated to build up our ego. Oh, I washed 15 feet today. Aren't I great? That's not the way it's supposed to come across. So what we see in this foot washing is something emblematic of the incarnation itself. The willingness of the Son of God to assume our humanity to, as it were, in the language of uh, of Philippians chapter 2, to empty himself, not divest himself of deity but rather to take on the form of a bond servant, to identify with us in such extremities that he was willing to go to the cross for us men and for our salvation. And that's the second thing it points to. It's not just the incarnation, but it's the passion. It's the reality that the one who is willing to serve at the level of washing dirty, nasty feet is the one that's going to go to the cross in order to wash our dirty, nasty hearts. If we look at this and we say, ah, I wouldn't want to touch those stinky feet, he's touching our stinky hearts. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, according to Jeremiah 17, 9. We are at enmity with God most high. Our hearts are estranged from God. We walk according to the prince of the power who works in in, in in the sons of disobedience. We are given to depravity and inability and all sorts of transgression and wickedness. The fact that the Son of God would live for us and would die for us and be raised again for us is truly amazing. It is truly wondrous that he does that in order to wash our hearts in order to give us life eternal, in order to give us that blessedness. And I think it's similar to what he says in Matthew 20 at verse 28. He says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This idea of servanthood on the part of the Savior was prophesied by Isaiah. There's what we call four servant songs of the Lord in the prophet Isaiah. You see them in chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapters 52 and 53. Essentially, what you get are facets of the Messiah. And there specifically, he's identified as the servant of the Lord. So when we see the Lord himself washing the feet of these disciples, it's a good thing in and of itself. He's washing the filth off their feet. But it points to the incarnation, the fact that he assumes our humanity to save us from our sins. And it points to the passion that if he's able to clean these feet in terms of humble servanthood, then he's going to clean the hearts in terms of humble servanthood as well. In fact, as you look at this, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, see the willingness of the Savior. I know at times there are persons that preach the gospel, and they make it very difficult. They make it very hard. They make it sound as if God's really not about saving sinners. If you happen to get saved, well, you know, praise be to God, but that's that's not really what it's about. Brethren, that's precisely what it's about. That's absolutely, positively, exactly what it's about. From the moment that God comes to Adam and Eve in the garden, from the moment that God kills the uh, the animals and clothes Adam and Eve, the moment that God comes to Abram of of Ur the Chaldean and and, and says in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, the fact of the prophets, the fact of the Psalter, the fact of the, the anticipation of the coming Christ, The fact that in the fullness of the time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law. Do you think he does that because he's not about saving sinners? Do you think he orchestrates the entirety of the universe because he's not really in it? He's just a miser when it comes to the level of salvation. Do you think he's a liar when we get to Revelation 7 and it says there's a great multitude there that that no man can number? learn from the foot washing, the willingness of the servant of Yahweh to carry out his task in the salvation of sinners. If he's going to wash feet, then he's certainly good to wash hearts. If he's going to go over these stinky feet, he's going to go to your stinky heart. This blessed Savior is the one in whom there is salvation. And you should listen, you should hear, and you should observe what he does in this particular account. So the glory involved is that the one described, notice in verse uh, 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. So the one sent by the Father, the one now returning to the Father, nevertheless takes this time to wash the feet of his disciples. So that's the washing of the feet. Notice as well the refusal by Peter in verses 6 to 8a. Verse six, then he came to Simon Peter. The idea is, is that he at least had done all of the disciples or, or at least some of the disciples. Peter wasn't the first. So it says, or we see of Simon Peter, Lord, Lord are, are you washing my feet? And now that question is not out of order. Oh, how dare you, Peter? No, how dare you, Peter, that you refuse obstinately, but, but this question really isn't out of order. It was usually the case that the inferior would wash the feet of the superior, right? Makes sense. You didn't come home at night and hang your coat on the hat, on the coat rack and call your servants into the living room and say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna wash your feet. No, it's just the other way around. When you hung your hat on the hat rack and your servant you know, called you up and you sat in your living room, it was the servant who washed your feet. So, so the question or the refusal or the observation by Peter, isn't, it isn't without merit. Are you washing my feet? Again, Peter's operating in the realm of normal, ordinary affairs. It's not the case that superiors bend down and wash the feet of inferiors. It, it just doesn't happen. But again, notice the link. It's not usually the case that superiors go to the cross and die for the inferiors either. But what we have in the gospel is something absolutely mind-blowing and glorious. So Peter's refusal at this point is not without warrant. It's not without uh, merit. But then notice in verse seven, and here's why I argue that the foot washing, at least to a degree, points to the cross. So verse seven, Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. After what? After the foot washing? Well, probably not after his death and after his resurrection. John chapter two, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days, I will raise it up. What do they say? Well, it took us 46 years to build this temple. And do you say you're going to build it up in three days? What does John tell us? He was talking about the temple of his body. Well, John could only say that post-resurrection after having seen the truth of Christ crucified and raised again from the dead. And look over at John 16, specifically at verses 12 and 13. Jesus acknowledges that they will learn more after these things. 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. So back in 13.7... At Peter's objection or Peter's refusal in verse six, Lord, are are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. It it points beyond the simple act of foot washing. It it points beyond the, you've got dirty feet. I've got a clean basin of water. Let's go ahead and get those things clean. It's not just that. The foot washing is emblematic. It's physical, it's real, it happened. But there's other things going on that our Lord wants to remind them of, and specifically his passion, specifically his death on the cross, specifically his willingness to wash guilty sinners. The the, the fact that the prophets have spoken concerning the washing in the, the fountain that is open for sin and uncleanness in Zechariah 13, The fact that Yahweh says to Israel, behold, your sins are are like crimson, but I will wash them whiter than snow. The fact that there is in the Old Testament that expectation of a coming Messiah that will function as the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. You see, the foot washing points forward to that blessed reality, and that's what Jesus is saying. Now notice there's this stubborn refusal with Peter. Verse eight, after Jesus says, uh, 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 after Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now comes the stubborn refusal in verse nine, or I'm sorry, verse eight, you shall never wash my feet. Now, this is where he's stepping it up a bit, but this is not out of character for what we know of Peter. He's a bit of an impetuous guy. He's a ready, fire, aim guy, he makes, you know, bold assertions and then kind of doesn't follow up if, you know, I, I'm willing to die with you, Lord. What does Jesus say to him? He says, you're going to deny me. It's very nice. And he does deny him. And not before the emperor, not before the secret police, but before a servant girl. So Peter has an impetuousness about him. And now he doubles down. You're not going to wash my feet. It's just not going to happen. We're just not going to go there, Lord. That's not something I can endorse. That's not something I can can sign off on. And again, it's born out of decent motives. He knows his own unworthiness and he knows Christ's worthiness. He knows his own insignificance and he knows Christ's significance. But when you refuse the son of God, after he's already washed the feet of the others, and after he has already said to him, you may not get it now, but you're gonna get it later. You don't double down. You don't refuse the way that Peter does. Now look at our Lord's response to him when he answers the question in terms of the explanation of his service. So notice in 8b, Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That's, again, pointing not just to this physical act of washing the filth off their feet. If you don't get your feet washed, you can't play with us in this upper room discourse. No, he now penetrates below the surface of the foot washing to teach spiritual lessons, to teach something true of the, the human condition. So again, look at 8b. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. The emphasis is on spiritual cleansing, which the foot washing points to. I'm not making this up. Jesus is telling us in this very way. The necessity of cleansing through the blood of Christ and regeneration by the Spirit for communion with Christ. That's what's highlighted here. That's the emphasis. He takes the simple act of washing feet at this time of supper to teach them something about what is true concerning their own state before a holy God, but as well what is true of mankind and their state before a holy God. He's enforcing upon them lessons that have already come out in John's gospel. Ne- uh, uh, the, the necessity of regeneration in John 3. We need to be cleansed, we need to be washed, we need to be born again. These things aren't new. These things are being reminded of so that these disciples will be fit for gospel ministry in his absence. John Gill says God's elect have a part and interest in Christ through eternal electing and covenant grace and in consequence of this are washed by Christ both with his blood and with the washing of regeneration and this is done in order that they may have a part with Christ spiritual fellowship with him now and possess with him the undefiled inheritance when time shall be no more Look at verse 8b again, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. That's the emphasis. Do you want part with Christ, communion with Christ, union with Christ, blessedness in Christ, or not? Well, in order to have it, you must be born again. You must be washed. You must be cleansed, not just the dirt on your feet, but the heart You need to be born by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. You need the graces of faith and repentance to see Jesus as altogether lovely. You need that for a part with him. Now notice Peter's response in light of that. He is impetuous. He is a ready fire aim guy. He's got a few sort of loose ends in his life. There's a few I's that aren't dotted and a few T's that aren't crossed. But this one thing is true, Peter. He wants his part with Jesus. He wants his part with Jesus. Remember John 6, 68? Jesus says, Do you also want to stop following me? What is Peter's response? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, even when Peter denies Jesus and and Jesus looks at Peter and Peter goes out and he weeps bitterly, he doesn't leave. He's not done, he's not gone. Where else or to whom else shall I go? You have the words of eternal life. So notice Peter's response in verse nine to our Savior's statement in 8b. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He gets it, he's a sinner. He needs salvation, he needs that washing, he needs that purification. It's similar to Luke 5. Remember when Jesus tells the disciples, the fishermen disciples, cast out on that side of the net. Remember the other instance of that? Peter says, you know, Lord, I don't want to tell you your business, but we've been out here all night. We're seasoned. We're experienced. This is in our DNA. We we know about fishing. Okay? So, you know, just kind of stick to your own wisdom. Kind of how Peter comes across. Well, the same sort of thing happens here in Luke 5, 8, and once they pull up this big haul of fish, it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. In other words, he's come face to face with someone other. He's come to face with, face to face with the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It was something different about Jesus, something unique about Jesus, something that differentiated Jesus. The prologue makes it clear. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The same sort of thing happens here. Unless you're washed, unless you're cleansed, unless you're born again, you have no part with me. So Peter says, not just my feet, but my hands and my head. In other words, Lord, I'm a filthy man. I'm a dirty man. I'm a sinful man. I have transgressed the law of God. I need cleansing. I need washing, why? Because I want my part with you. See, that's it. You can live this life and be estranged from God most high. And at times never think much about it, but you're going to think about it on that day of judgment when you stand before the Lord Christ, when you give an account of deeds done in the body, whether good or ill, I would encourage you now, friend, to have your part with Jesus now. Don't wait till then because it'll be too late. The way of a part in Jesus is by looking to Jesus in faith believe on him and you will be saved. And again, he's not a miserly God. He's not just barely doling it out. He's using foot washing to describe the willingness behind the saving of his people. It is a glorious illustration of the lengths to which he'll go in order to save his people from their sins. To so this idea that, you know, God's not really in the business of saving. I mean, there's like five, ten, maybe, hundred tops. But beyond that, you know, just stay in your pew. Don't ever think about these things. In fact, throw off the thought of God altogether. If he's going to save you, he's going to snap his finger and you're going to be saved. That's how it's going to go. No, everything in the Bible converges upon this blessed reality that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, And so much so that the apostle Paul says, of whom I am chief, so that you can't ever conclude that I'm too sinful to be saved. My feet are too dirty to be washed. My heart is too wretched to be cleansed. No, it isn't. The Lord Jesus Christ is in that particular business. So now Peter sees what's at stake, and now Peter says, uh, uh, Lord, not my my feet only, but but also my hands and my head. Now Jesus continues to teach spiritual truth. Notice in verses 10 and 11. So Jesus said to him, he was bathed, needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. The physical bathing here, again, points to spiritual regeneration and justification. So John 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Jesus gets right to it in John 3, 3. If, unless a man is born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. They dialogue a little bit. Jesus chides Nicodemus, are you the teacher in Israel and you don't know these things? Why does Jesus do that? Is he mean? Is he vicious? Is he unkind? He's raining on Nicodemus's parade. Nicodemus should have known this because it was promised in the prophet Ezekiel when God promises to take out the old stony heart, to put in a new fleshly heart, to sprinkle it with clean water. What's it pointing forward to? Regeneration by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says that in verse 10. He says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. I think that reference is to sanctification we're washed, cleansed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're regenerated by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe on Jesus. Well, what happens? Our hearts are clean. Our, our heads and our, our hands are clean. We're justified freely by his grace. So why do the feet need daily washing? Well, I think that's 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It points to that, that sanctification each and every day. Not that it's going to keep us out of the kingdom, but to maintain that friendly presence of God Most High, we confess our sins. We seek by grace to forsake those sins. We seek by grace to walk in the Spirit according to God's holy law, So the idea here is that you've been regenerated, you've been cleansed, you've been washed in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, uh, uh, you you need your feet washed daily or, or cleansed daily. Listen to John Gill. He says, the feet of his life and conversation, which are continually gathering dirt and need daily washing in the blood of Christ. And therefore recourse must be constantly had to that fountain to wash in for sin and for uncleanness. I think that's a good reading of the text. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. We can all affirm that theologically, justification. What happens? We're forgiven of all of our sins. All of our sins are cleansed away by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's wonderful. And in justification, we receive his righteousness. It's imputed to us. It's received by faith alone. And then we live the life of sanctification. Are we perfect? No, no. Do our feet get dirty day in and day out? Yeah. Is there an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ the righteous, for that day in and day out dirty feet? Yes, there is. So Jesus is highlighting spiritually uh, uh, the spiritual significance behind the foot washing. This is what's going to obtain. This is what's going to happen when he goes to the cross, when he's raised from the dead. This is what happens to these disciples proleptically. They're looking to the cross. They've already believed. They've already been washed. They've already been bathed, he says. But you need that daily foot washing in terms of sanctification. The first John 1, 9, seek the father's friendly face and don't live in light of his his counten- uh, uh, the darkness of his countenance. In other words, dissipate the gloomy clouds by maintaining short accounts with God. And then he says, he's, uh, uh, or John tells us, or Jesus says, and then John interprets for us, he says, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. He knew the betrayer. Notice that Jesus isn't a universalist. He knows and affirms the doctrine of reprobation he knows and affirms that not everybody's going to go to heaven. He knows and affirms that Judas, the betrayer, is on his way to hell. And he says as much. He says, but you're not all clean. In fact, there's a traitor in the midst of us. It's announced by the evangelist in verse 2, and here it is fortified by uh, by our Savior when he affirms this. See, I know not all of you are clean. I know there's a traitor in our midst. I know there is a betrayer in our midst. And John tells us as much. Now, that brings us then to the exhortation to the disciples in verses 12 to 17. See a lot of spiritual things going on in the actual act of foot washing. Points to the incarnation, points to the passion, points to the reality of, of regeneration, justification, points to sanctification, points to a lot of things in terms of what we do in theology, explaining the gospel of our salvation. So now what Jesus does in 12 to 17 is he brings it home real practically for the disciples as they are being prepared to go out and to to make disciples of all the nations. See, brethren, getting angry at somebody on Facebook or Twitter isn't really the way that Jesus commends us to win souls. Calling people idiots and fools, and you know, defriending them or blocking them because they have a, you know, bit of a different variation on something that really isn't absolutely crucial for salvation, doesn't advance the cause. Screaming at people on the road, now oh, there might be a chance or a time. I, I, you know, got to think through this. There might be a time. Raise your voice a little bit. Prophet was told, cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. I'm not suggesting we all be, you know, passive, limp-wristed, little, you know, pushovers as we go out upon the task. But Jesus does mandate the means by which or the methodology by which his disciples are to represent him, to advance his cause. And so he does that here in verses 12 to 17. What what do you think is important? Well, love, self-sacrifice and serving the needs of other people. A lot of times we can make a way for ourselves to preach the gospel to another sinner by just love, and self-sacrifice, and trying to serve their needs. Well, there's gotta be a formula. Well, if you want a formula, there it is. Love them, self-sacrifice for them, and, and you know, tell them the truth as it is in Jesus. I'm sure I've shared with you before the, the old movie, I think it was done in the 60s, it was based on a book called the gospel blimp. The gospel blimp, and it starts off with a group of people sitting in their backyard, Christians, how how are you going to win sinners to Jesus? And they look over the fence, and and there's Herm, the unconverted neighbor. How do we we get Herm to Jesus? Well, we'll we'll get a blimp, and from that blimp, we'll, you know, send out gospel tracts all over the the neighborhood, and Herm will get one of those tracts. He'll read that track, and he'll get saved. There's steps before the blimp. I think that's sort of the pinnacle of their attempts to, to to win Herm. And so, as you might expect, as these gospel tracks are showering down upon the neighborhood, people cutting their grass aren't too thrilled with this. You know, they're doing this, and the guy in the blimp is waving sort of like that. And how do we how do we reach him? Well, at the end of the movie, one of the guys takes Herm bowling. I'm not saying, you know, bowling is the key to successful evangelism. The the, the point or the morale or the moral of the story was be friendly toward people. You don't need blimps. You don't need movies. You you, you just need to be friendly. You just need to be kind. You just need to be like the master. You don't need a blimp. You need a basin with water. You need a, a towel to gird yourself and you need the humility to get at their feet and wash them. That's the the point of verses 12 to 17. Notice his argument in verses 12 to 14. So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. He completes the task, and now he interprets it for them not at the spiritual level which he already did we already know it goes beyond just washing dirt off feet but practically there's a lesson here for disciples that are going to be in the, the, the uh, tasked with disciple making so he says do, do you know what i've done you call me teacher and lord and you say well for so i am he affirms his dignity he affirms his royalty he affirms his majesty, and he argues from the greater to lesser. If your superior has washed your inferior feet, certainly inferior to inferior ought to be legit, certainly inferior to inferior within the context of the disciple group, but as well inferior to inferior outside of the disciple group with the possibility or potential to weave your way in so that you can speak the truth and love concerning the master." So he says this in order that they will understand doctrine, theology, Bible, knowledge is absolutely crucial, but it must be in the orbit and in the context of Christian love and kindness and gentleness and friendliness and happiness and joy. You see, brethren, we're not supposed to go out as if we're Muslims. We're gonna see for you into the kingdom of heaven. No, that's not what we're supposed to do. We tell them the good news as it is in Jesus. We take them to this passage and say, look it, our master washes the feet of dirty sinners. But that's nothing compared to the fact that later on in the book, he washes the hearts of dirty sinners. He really is that good. He's really that wonderful. He's really that gracious. So Jesus says, you've seen what I am you know what I've done, therefore, you ought to do the same thing also. I am the teacher, one man says, because of the wisdom I teach by my words. I am the Lord because of the power I show in my miracles. And as I said, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. Look at that. Verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Well, that really highlights something that we find in the New Testament epistles. It's the one another's in the New Testament epistles. How are we supposed to conduct ourselves in the context of the local church toward one another? Pride? Arrogance? We're too good for you? We're too mighty for you? We're too special for you? No. Humility, self-sacrifice, love, finding out the needs of others and seeking to minister to them. Look over at the book of Philippians, where we see a similar argument based on glorious Christology. Philippians chapter 2, you know the passage. We often refer to it in terms of the incarnation of our Lord. But it comes in a passage wherein the apostle is encouraging the people of God to function in a particular manner toward the other people of God. Notice verse five, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Good translation or gloss on what it means to be emptied. He doesn't empty himself of divinity, but rather he makes himself of no reputation by the assumption of our humanity. He's in the form of God. He's in the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of man. Verse eight, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has, or also has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Let's just back up to verse five again. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, what mind? Well, that exemplified by our Lord in verses six to eight, the form of God taking the form of a bondservant, but the specific exhortations in verses one to four. Look, look at what he says. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being what? By being like-minded having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as uh, better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. See, that's the means by which, or the strategy by which the Savior says to the the disciples, you to go out and win the world to Jesus, not with military might, not with the biggest guns, but with the most love, the kindness, the self-sacrifice. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5, specifically at verse 5. And the language of clothing here is reminiscent of the upper room and Jesus taking off his outer garment and putting that towel around himself to gird himself, then to wash the feet of the disciples. Notice in 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you younger people submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility for God the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So back to our text. He says in verse 14, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then he says very specifically that they now have an obligation according to verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. (laughs) You don't just say, wow, that was great, Lord. My feet are squeaky clean. That's great, Lord. My heart is squeaky clean. Now I can just go lay on my couch with a clean heart and clean feet. No, you're supposed to go out and do that kind of stuff to others as well. You can't clean their hearts. You don't have the power to regenerate people. You can't make them anew. You can't make them born again. But you certainly have the capacity through your own humility, self-sacrifice to care for and to look out for the needs of others. That's certainly in your wheelhouse, and that's certainly your obligation based on the fact that the servant of Yahweh took this outer garment off, girded himself with a towel, poured water into a basin, and then went to the feet of these dirty disciples and washed them. But even more transcendent of that, he goes to the cross in order to shed his precious blood so that he can wash us from our sins. Why does he do that? So we can enjoy the salvation of God. What's another means by which we enjoy the salvation of God? By serving other people within the context of the church. The one and others, be kindly affectionate to one another, be hospitable to one another, love one another, care for one another. All these one and others in the scripture have as their backdrop, the fact that the Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So he shows them the spiritual truth behind the foot washing and then gives them the practical exhortation. This isn't a sacrament in the church. It's not supposed to be done every Christmas that we wash each other's feet. It is a paradigm of service. Much akin to what he does in Matthew 20 at verses 20 to, uh, 26 to 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them, yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He's preparing the disciples for service in his name to advance his cause through the preaching of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them their obligation. He encourages them with a pattern that he uses in persecution. He'll do it in John 15. He does it in Matthew 10. Notice in verse 16, most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. In other words, when it comes to persecution, Matthew 10, uh, John 15, know that if they, they persecute the master, they're gonna persecute the servant. Are we surprised at the increasing oppression or persecution that happens in the world? I mean, we don't like it. I don't like it. <laughs> I'd like them to just leave me alone. You probably have heard me say that ad nauseum. But I'm not surprised. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? Why do they take their, their counsel against Yahweh and against his Christ? Why do, they, why do they say we will not have this one to rule over us? So if they're opposed to to Yahweh and his Christ, they're going to be opposed to, to Christ's people. So he says that in Matthew 10. He says that in John 15. We see that pattern throughout the book of Acts. But it's also not just for persecution and oppression by the civil state or false religion but it's also with reference to service amongst ourselves and service to others. That's the point of verse 16. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. And then he pronounces a beatitude upon them. In verse 17, blessed are you if you hear this and you do it. Blessed are you if you hear what I say and you put it into practice. You ever thought about that? Do you ever get spiritually low or depressed? Well, not me, brother. I'm just always, you know, at the top ebb and flow. Always firing on, you know, all pistons. We all have struggles, don't we? We all are down in the dumps from time to time. We all understand when the psalmist says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Yeah, there's the particular application of that, our 11th hour when we're laying on our deathbed. But there's something foreshadowing in our lives of that episode. We find ourselves in the valleys in the Christian life. Do you know what's a good way to deal with that? By brooding, by whining, and by complaining. Because that gets you right out of the valley immediately. I mean, it just exalts you right from it. You know, whining and brooding and complaining. Try try it. You probably don't have to because you have in the past, And you realize i'm being cheeky it doesn't get you out of the valley you know what does from time to time when you minister to the needs of others there was an instance episode that happened in one of our churches many many years ago and i remember on the heels of it there was quite a just a blow to the congregation and a brother of mine a ministerial friend of mine said you know what they ought to do they ought to set up a barbecue in their parking lot, start cooking up burgers and hamburgers, feeding each other and inviting all the neighbors. Advance the cause through burgers and hot dogs? No. But don't just dwell in the doldrums. Don't just be content in the bottom of the hole. Brethren, if you're like me, you know by this point in your Christian life, you got to sometimes claw your way out of that hole. It, it doesn't, Lord, deliver me from the hole. Boop, right there, you're standing on the side of it. You, you have good counselors that come along and they say, you know, you really shouldn't live in that hole. <laughs> you should get up out of that hole. Worst counsel we give to each other. You, you need to get out of that hole. Really, I, I didn't know that. I, I'm quite at peace in the bottom of this hole. Brethren, they know they need to get out of the hole. That, that's not the, argue, or the, the, the issue. It's how to get out of the hole. Again, whining, brooding, and complaining, that's one method. Sometimes that digs the hole a bit deeper. But getting outside of yourselves and helping somebody else, maybe the master's right. Maybe the Lord Jesus is right. Maybe he knows that there's a blessing, a beatitude to be had when we look outside ourselves and we serve one another. That's the beatitude pronounced. Now, I just want to summarize all that we have learned in the space of about 30 seconds to a minute. First, the exhortation for Christian service. We're going to walk our way backwards. Actually, I do not intend to do it in 30 seconds to a minute, but I don't intend to do it for too long. This isn't WWJD. I remember some of you now are too young to remember the WWJD campaign. You wore a bracelet and it said on it WWJD. Well, that harkens back to a book. What would Jesus do so, you know, you're at the fork in the road, you're going to choose sin, or you're going to choose Jesus, and you go, well, what would Jesus do? And it's just kind of exemplary type of a mindset. And I'm not suggesting you choose what Jesus wouldn't do, but the gospel isn't just example, it's not just moral behavior and modification and all that sort of thing. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus isn't preaching law to sinners. Okay, just do what I do, wash feet, and then you'll go to heaven. He's talking to the 12, well, the 11, that are gonna be specifically tasked with being foundational to him the cornerstone in building the church. How are they gonna build that church? Through faithful, loving service to others. They're gonna do it through sound doctrine. That is not even an, an argument. I'm not saying it's either or. It must be both and. Sound doctrine and loves of, uh, loving deeds of service. So there is an exemplary element to this specifically communicated in verses 12 to 17. And the specific emphasis is on humility. Humility, as I said earlier, hey, I washed 15 feet today. Boy, I should get a prize. No, Ryle says we are all naturally self-righteous. It is the family disease of all the children of Adam. From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not so bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. I think he's right. I think he probably understates it tremendously. Thomas says, and since he who had come from God and was going to God is now washing the feet of others, he is treading underfoot the universal tendency to pride. Yeah, that's what he's doing. He's treading underfoot the universal tendency to pride. Remember, this, this isn't a spa. <laughs> Come on in, put your shoes there, take your socks off. We'll scent them first with a, you know, a few drops just to make sure our, our, our masseuse doesn't retch. And, and then we're going to lull you to sleep with this wonderful... He's washing dirty feet of dirty working men that hadn't had a shower recently, that could possibly not have had a shower even less than recently, had possibly been in the water, whatever. Take your shoes off for a day. Bring them to your wife at the end of the day and say, Honey, let's go ahead and enact this John 13 scene. Get them away from me. Go wash them first. This is humility, brethren. The son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. As well, self-sacrifice. The superior takes the outer garment off, girds himself with a towel, pours the water into the basin and takes the position of a slave. Having the form of God, he assumed the form of a servant. That's not hyperbole. That's not just made up. That's not just some literary flash on the part of the apostle. That's the incarnation of the son of God. He takes on our humanity. He makes himself of no reputation by assuming our nature. And this is an uh, an emblem of that. And then the emphasis on ministering to the needs of the others. You need your feet washed. You need this sort of help. And Jesus gives this. So the exemplary function of the passage mustn't be minimized. Again, I'm not recommending it as a sacrament of the church. I think that's overreading into the text. Some churches or some communions practice that. Every year we have a foot washing. We do this in imitation of our Lord. That's not the point. The go thou do likewise isn't wash your friend's nasty feet. The go thou do likewise is love him, be self-sacrificing for him, and engage in uh, deeds of service for him whether it's foot washing, whether it's picking him up on the freeway because his car broke down, whether it's bringing her a meal because she, she had some issues in the day, whatever it may be, loving deeds of kindness, not just foot washing. But then secondly, I wanna look at Peter. I wanna look at Peter. The recognition of his insignificance in Christ's worthiness. Good, excellent. But then the demonstration of his stubbornness. Not so good, not so excellent. But again, something we've come to Appreciate, not in the hey, I want to be like Peter way, but yeah, I get it. He kind of symptomizes or is symptomatic of of some of us in the Christian life. But that Peter wanted his part in Jesus. That he wanted his part in Jesus. This, This is the message I want to leave with you today Jesus is everything. Jesus is worthy. Jesus is significant. Jesus is glorious. Jesus is God's son who took on our flesh to live for us, to die for us, and to rise again. That's what I want you to hear today. Whether you got all the foot washing, the emblematic, the symbol, the whatever, just get this. Jesus is the best in the universe. Jesus is the best to have. Jesus is the best, and I dare say it, possess. We possess him by faith. He possesses us by his grace. He's the best. So when Peter is presented with this opportunity to double down yet again and refuse, he says, no, wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash everything I have, Lord, why? Because I want my part with Jesus. And then Jesus does this. See, that's what's absolutely mind blowing is that Jesus doesn't just talk like this. Jesus actually washed their feet. Jesus actually goes to the cross. Jesus actually washes a great multitude that no man can number. And the washing isn't, as I said earlier, a spa where you have a pre treatment with one of the, the inferiors and then send him to the masseuse who's got the mask on and is ready to actually get at the. It's not that. Listen to the apostle in the book of 1 Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. We know that, right? In a moral universe, it makes perfect sense for God to take guilty sinners and send them to everlasting fire. That's not a hard concept. If you think for a moment, you see pedophiles today. You see criminals today. And what rises up in you? They should be convicted. They should be put to, to death or they should be put in prison. They should be dealt with accordingly. This does not surprise anyone. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. What's surprising is what Paul says next because of what Jesus does, not just here in the foot washing, but in the heart washing. He says, and such were some of you but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Jesus is everything. Believe on Jesus and you will have everything. Your part in Jesus includes every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Not just a little bit. When he saves you, he saves to the uttermost. He's in the business, not just of washing dirty feet, but washing dirty hearts. Believe in him and you will be saved. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for our blessed Savior. We thank you for his willingness to go to that cross for us men and for our salvation. And we thank you that that willingness is demonstrated so beautifully here in John 13, 4 to 17. When he takes off the outer garment, when he puts that that towel around him, when he uh, puts that water in the basin, and he washes the feet of these dirty men. We thank you for that emblem of the gospel of our salvation. We know that we are sinners. We know that we have transgressed. We know that we are justly liable to your wrath and to your curse, both in this life and that which is to come. But we, by grace, have been washed, and we rejoice in that. And God help us to go thou and do likewise, knowing that we can't atone for the sins of our fellows, but we can certainly sacrificially serve them in a way that pleases and glorifies you and we ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, why don't we stand and we'll sing number 566 as we or I'm sorry 564 as we close out our worship this morning. 564 we'll stand as we sing together. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for the gracious and wonderful provision of your Son, the Son of your love, the only begotten Son, who saved us from our sins, may you indeed encourage our hearts, build us up in our most holy faith, and cause us to bring glory and honor and praise to you, and bless that preaching of your word throughout the earth, and may sinners see Jesus as the altogether lovely and chief among 10,000, and may they believe on him, and we pray through Christ our Lord, amen. We may be seated for a brief time of meditation.